All right, good morning. As I begin, I want to share maybe a few, or think of it this way, rather. Um, when it comes to certain jokes or maybe good stories or even certain movies, you have to wait till the end. And when you get to the end, things that can happen at the end can shed light on what happened earlier in the movie or the story, and then you look at it completely differently once you get to the end. So let me give you a few examples. In the movie The Sixth Sense, you find out at the end that Bruce Willis is dead, and when you see that, you then think of the whole movie in a different light. Uh, you could think of Star Wars, the original in the original trilogy, when uh, Darth Vader tells Luke that he is your father, he is his father, then you, you look back and you think differently about the things that transpired, know that, knowing that they were had a relationship that Luke didn't know about. Um, or if you think of the movie Fight Club, at, at the end of the movie, you find out that the two main characters were actually the same person. Um, or give you one more example, as we saw a few weeks ago, uh, the movie Lion King, uh, when you find out that uh, Nala and Simba are actually half-siblings. Right? That's that's. Anybody? That weird? Okay, just weird to me. All right. Well, I think that's weird. Uh, that's interesting. Um, so when I share that, because this morning as we continue our time through the book of Exodus, uh, we're going to see when we get to the end of our time here, these next few minutes, uh, at the end, it's going to shed light and what we're going to read is going to make a lot more sense. When we get to the end, we're going to find out something that's going to make us view this whole story, I think, a lot differently. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. If you're new with us, we've been in the book of Exodus for really the last, I don't know, couple months. Uh, we're looking at the story of God rescuing the Israelite people out of Egypt. He's rescuing the Israelite people out of Egypt, and they've been in slavery. There's been bondage. There's been legalized oppression. There's even been genocide. And so God has come in, and he's, in the last two weeks, we've seen the plagues where God, through Moses, is telling Pharaoh that Pharaoh needs to let God's people go. Right? He needs to let them out of, the, uh, out of Egypt. And so Pharaoh is saying no, and so God is showing his power, and Pharaoh is still saying no. It gets to the point where even Pharaoh's officials are like, this is really bad. Can we do something about it? But he won't let them go. And so this is going to set us up with the 10th and final plague this morning uh, that we're going to read. Now, what we're going to do here is this is going to be one of those times where you have to kind of work to get the payoff. And so you might be thinking, well, this is a lot of information. Uh, there's a lot of things going on here. Like, why is he telling? me all of this stuff. Again, when we get to the end of these next few minutes, then it will make more sense. I don't know if there's a way to make that stop. Can anyone hear that noise? But just me. Come on, Sam. Come on back up. Everyone give Sam a hand. There we go. Thank you. I don't know if anyone else heard that, but just to be safe, we went that way. Hopefully it doesn't mess you up at the end. Um, and so we're going to be Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 1, the final plague after Pharaoh says, no, I don't want to see you again. God is going to rain his power on display to allow Pharaoh to let Israel's people leave. And here's what it says, chapter 12, verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, In the land of Egypt, this month is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. So just real quick, Israel's new calendar as they leave Egypt is going to be set in accordance with God's saving act for them out of Egypt. Their, their calendar is going to be always in remembrance of what God did at this moment. It's an annual reminder of his faithfulness, and it's going to result in a week-long celebration that they're going to do every year. Verse 3 says, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, they must each select an animal of the flock according to their father's families, one animal per family. If the household is too small for a whole animal, 
that person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to what each will eat. So again, Passover is what this celebration, this meal is going to be called, is a commemorative feast. Uh, you can kind of think of it like this. There's a few holidays in American culture that are celebrated or there's a big, there's a meal involved that's significant. So we have one coming up, right, Thanksgiving, where you have to kind of plan who's going to come and make sure there's enough food. And so there's a, a feast involved. It's a big part of the holiday. Uh, for Christmas, for many people, there's a, probably a big meal involved. Or for Easter, for some families, there's a big meal involved. We have some of these holidays as well. Um, the difference is not only do they have to have careful preparation for to have enough food for everybody like we do, they have to have it. It's even harder for them because they're not supposed to have any leftovers, right? And so, so some of you that like won't tell your family if you're coming for Thanksgiving or Christmas, right? This won't work in grandma's house back in Israel, right? She needs to know who's coming so she can feed you and not have any leftover. That's part of what they're going to do here. And so in verse five, it says this, he says, you must have an unblemished animal, a year old male, you may take it from either the sheep or the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. Right? So they're going to do this every year. They're going to take a, a year-old male, either a sheep or a goat, and, and kind of use them as a sacrifice and would eat this meat in remembrance of what God has done. Now, this is a significant for us because before meeting, uh, sorry, more, more, before modern breeding practices came into fruition, and I say that as if I have any idea what modern breeding practices are, all I know is as I was reading about it, uh, back in ancient cultures, you would only, it was called either lambing or goat kidding, you would only breed your animals in the spring. Right? You would, that's the only time of year that you would do it. And so it, there were literally would have been plenty of one-year-old animals or sheeps or goats to use and to eat from because it happens in the spring, and every spring is when the animals breed. So they, had, would, what, they would take one uh, male lamb or goat, one male sheep for the entire assembly that is coming together, uh, partially because females were a little bit more uh, needed because of their milk and their breeding, and so you'd want to keep them around. And so they take a one-year-old male. It'd have to be unblemished. And it's not because uh, uh, sheep or goats that aren't like perfect taste different. It's supposed to symbolize uh, and, and reflect God's saving grace to us. Uh, a, a unblemished sacrifice, if you will. And we'll see in the next couple of verses why, that's ma why that matters. Now, I just want to take a pause here as we're talking about this kind of this Passover meal and what it means, if you've been with us throughout the book of Exodus, you know one of the uh, repeated themes that we've seen is that the, the, the scripture is a unified story that leads to who? They, good job, right? Now, I just want to say as a side note, normally when you're in church and there's a question, they always say the answer is Jesus. That is particularly true today, okay? So if I ever ask you what the answer to the question, just know it's Jesus, right? And so if we're thinking for a second of God's full plan of redemption, uh, if you think of someone who was young at the time of death, who was a male, who was a perfect and unblemished sacrifice, who does this sound like? <laughs> who does this sound like? There we go. I, I just gave you the answers to all the cheat, all, all the tests. Okay, it's Jesus today. Who does this? This sounds like this sounds interesting to us as followers of Jesus, reading the story. So verse seven, it says this: it says they must take some of the blood of the lamb and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they eat them. They are to eat the meat that night. They should eat it roasted over the fire, along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or uncooked in boiling water, but only roasted over fire, its head as well as its legs and inner organs. 
You must not leave any of it until morning. Any part of it left until morning, you must burn. And here's how you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You are to eat in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. Right? So again, this is going to be their final meal before the exodus, before the death of the firstborn, which is the final plague in Egypt. And so as they prepare this meal, they eat it ready to go. It says that they are to take the blood of the lamb and mark their door frames with it. Because in the middle of the night, the spirit of the Lord is going to come through Egypt and strike down the firstborn of all the Egyptians. Now, I think it's significant for us just to understand here that they don't have to mark their house because God doesn't, doesn't know who's an Israelite and who's not. It's not like God's like, oh, who lives here? Let me knock on the door and see. You know, it's like, that's not how it's, how it's happening. Marking of the doorpost is not for the Israel, or not for God so much as it is for the Israelites to determine or to demonstrate their trust in God. That is why they are supposed to mark their doorposts. And so roasting, as a side note, would be the quickest way to prepare the meal, as well as eating unleavened bread. So they're going to prepare this meal. They're going to eat it in their various homes, and then they're going to leave. They're going to prepare and eat in a hurry because that is how they left Egypt, or they leave Egypt. And it's also significant to remember that not leaving leftovers is important. It's not because God was like, I don't want them to uh, have leftovers or because their leftovers are going to be bad in the morning and I feel bad. That's not the reason for it. The reason for it is to show trust in God's provision for the next day. They're heading out on a journey and they're really going to have to trust God. And so by God saying, take no food with you, is to demonstrate that he will provide. And so I just want to make this, uh, I mean, this point real quick, because I think it's easy for us to forget that following God requires trust, right? Following God requires trust. I think sometimes we like to assume that if we follow Jesus, then that means we have to have all of our answers, all of our questions answered, and we have to know how things are going to turn out for us. The reality of the situation, no matter what worldview you and I might choose, we always have to trust. Like following God does not mean we're going to know how this is going to work out. The Israelites have no idea how this is going to play out for them, but they have to trust. And it kind of reminds me when I was a kid, and you can probably relate to this too, when you were a kid and you were trick-or-treating, uh, this is a little bit different this year because of COVID. So this was kind of like this at every house. But I remember as a kid going to trick-or-treating and then there'd be certain houses where they would just have a bowl on the, you know, right in front of the front door. And it would say like, take one, right? And so you would go to these houses and you would be trick-or-treating and you go to the bowl and it would say, take one. And like most of the time, there would be no candy in the bowl, right? You go to the house, there'd be no candy. Why? Because some dumb kids had come and taken all the candy and ruined it for everybody else. And so I remember doing this when I would go to these houses and there'd be no candy left. I'm like, there's plenty of candy. Like, you're not going to run out of candy. Why are you ruining it for everybody else? Like, I was frustrated, right? Because they, I guess, didn't trust that they were going to have their fill of candy. And so I would walk up to these houses and I'd be like, these kids are dumb. Why would they do that? And then I'd also think these parents, these people in these houses are dumb because half the time you'd walk into their walk up to the front door and you can like see them watching TV. So they're clearly home. And I'm like, Halloween is once a year for one hour. Just be nice and like open your door, right? You're dumb. The kids are dumb. I was a very loving and compassionate child. Okay, that's just obviously, you know, you just want to be my best friend. Um, and so, you know, so I was doing this thing. And, I, and as I think about this, like trusting that there would be enough candy and like, well, I can't believe kids did that. I, I always believed that as we got older and as we got more mature, that we wouldn't do that anymore. Right. That people wouldn't take things that they didn't need. Um, and then COVID happened. 
And uh, as I see on social media, there is a shortage in toilet paper. And because I'm weird, I like wanted to research why that was. And it was because, you know, people were no longer going to their, their, their workplaces or their schools for toilet paper. And apparently the toilet paper companies make uh, residential toilet paper and non-residential toilet paper in like different plants. And so there wasn't enough residential toilet paper because obviously they weren't used to people like not going to work. And so uh, there wasn't much toilet paper. And then the places where there were, I saw some of y'all on social media. So I judged you about finding, if you find a place with toilet paper, what do you do? You take this most amount that they will let you take. Instead of just taking one and trusting that everything is going to be okay because we're in America and the things will be fine, you'll take three or four. And now some of you still have toilet paper in your attic or your garage and you don't know what to do with it, right? You didn't trust that your bum would be okay, <laughs> right? Now I've, I've I walked with the Lord, I've repented for my judgment, but I was like, these are the people right here that stole the candy at Halloween. They stole everybody's toilet paper, right? They didn't trust then it would be okay. And <laughs> all I have to say, what we see here, to remember the point of all this, what, what, what am I talking about? Following God requires trust. We do have to trust that he will provide in the way that he seems fit. And that's what the Israelites have to do here. And so we'll continue verse 12. Here's what it says next. God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So again, blood on the doorpost is not for God to know where the Israelites live. Blood on the doorpost was for them to show that they had accepted God's plan for salvation and for deliverance, and they trusted him and were going to do what he asked them to do. In other words, what we see happening here is that God will pass over or he will spare those who trust in him. Does that sound familiar to anybody? He will spare those who put their trust in him. Right? And so what we're going to see coming is that the destruction is going to come for the people who reject God and go their own way and say, I'm not going to follow the God of Israel. I'm going to continue to do my own thing. And so Pharaoh was warned about this. He was told that destruction was going to come. And again, as someone who kind of viewed himself as a sort of deity, as the, the, the leader of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world at this time, he, of course, is not going to submit what God is asking him to do. And so he continually rejects uh, Israel's request to leave. And so God's power and mercy or power and might is going to be on display. And so I just want to reiterate this point as we see this idea of, of putting the blood on the doorpost and what we've been talking about. We need to remember and understand uh, that God doesn't need to know if you trust him. You need to know if you trust him. At the end of the day, this isn't like God up in heaven is like, I wonder, really hope Johnny or Susie like follows me today and loves me. Like, I don't know what they're thinking. That's not how he works. God does not need to know if you trust him. You need to know if you trust him. Why? Because God already knows. The question is, do you? And so God allows us to do things to demonstrate our trust and following him. It's not because God is unsure, but we need to know. Our, is the trajectory of our lives or our actions or what we say, what we do, do they demonstrate a trust in God or they demonstrate that we're kind of going our own way? It, it kind of reminds me of the story 
of the brown M&Ms in 1982. Now, you may have heard the story of like rock bands not putting green M&Ms in their, in their dressing rooms and all that sort of thing. Um, that actually is not accurate. If you look online, you'll see a lot of like rock bands did this, but you have no examples. Uh, that kind of myth came from a true story for the, the band Van Halen in 1982. It wasn't green M&Ms, it was brown M&Ms. And in fact, you can go online and you can read about this stuff now. They have interviews about it. Um, but in 1982, Van Halen was going on their world tour and they had a that point, the most elaborate set and light designs that any bands had. And so because it was so elaborate and it was heavy and it was very advanced, they needed to know when they went to various venues that the venues were going to do everything that they could have done beforehand to make sure the show was successful. And so a part, as part of their rider, which a rider is essentially what a band would give a venue to say, here are our expectations, here's what we want to see set up. As part of their rider, right in the very middle of the rider, it said that in the, in the dressing rooms, they don't want any brown M&Ms. In other words, they wanted M&Ms, but they wanted you to take all the brown M&Ms out. And people kind of thought that they were just being dramatic or that sort of thing. And it, they, said later after, they said after the fact, it wasn't because they were trying to like be dramatic or trying to be like rock stars or just kind of crazy and high maintenance. He said the reason for this is because if they took the brown M&Ms out, that means they actually read the rider and they paid attention and we know that we can trust this venue. And so they go to one venue in Philadelphia, they said later on, where, they, where there is brown M&Ms. And so the band trashed the dressing room when they left so that all the other venues would know, like, we, this matters to us. And so they're going on a tour and they end up in Santa Fe, New Mexico. They were doing a show in a brand new basketball arena and there were brown M&Ms in the M&M bowl. And so they trashed the, uh, they, they trashed the dressing room as they left and it caused a couple hundred dollars of damage. What they didn't know is that during the show, the stage had actually sunk six feet into the basketball floor and the gymnasium floor of this arena, causing half a million dollars in damage. Now, the story broke that uh, Van Halen was just very dramatic because of their brown M&Ms and trashed the dressing room and caused half a million dollars in damage. That's not what happened. The, the venue was destroyed. They had to redo the entire floor of the massive arena because they didn't follow the instructions. The brown M&Ms were for the, for the band to know, can we actually trust where we're going? And I just share that story because, again, for us, we need to remember that God is not wondering, do you trust him? He's allowing us to demonstrate whether or not we trust him, whether or not we actually show that, that we trust that he is good and that we are going to be faithful to what he's asking us to do. God doesn't need to know if you trust him. You need to know if you trust him. And that is what he's inviting them to do with the Passover. Do this thing. Eat the meal in the way that I am uh, asking you to meet. Uh, put the blood on the doorpost so that you can show that you actually trust in me. And so that's what they do. Here's what happens next. Verse 14. It says, This day, the day of the Passover, is to be a memorial for you, and you must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You are to celebrate it throughout your generations as a permanent statue. You must eat unleavened bread for seven days. On the first day, you must remove the yeast from your houses. Whoever eats what is leavened from the first day through the seventh day must be cut off from Israel. You are to hold a sacred assembly on the first day, in another sacred assembly on the seventh day. No work may be done on those days except for preparing what people need to eat. You may, only, you may do only that. You are to observe the festival of unlimited bread because on this very day, I brought your military divisions out of the land of Egypt. You must observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent statute. You are to eat unleavened bread in the first month of the, of, from the evening of the 14th day of the month until the evening of the 21st day. You must not be found in your houses uh, for seven days. If anyone eats something leavened, that person, whether a resident alien or native of the land, must be cut off from the community of Israel. 
Do not eat anything leavened. Eat unleavened bread and all your homes. So this instruction here is not for <coughs> the night of the Passover. This is for the generations to come. It's going to be a week-long celebration. And, and, and so what they're going to do is, they're, again, they're going to eat a meal in remembrance of not having a lot of time to prepare a meal. And so what they would do is they would do this, again, to remember God's faithfulness and to show and to demonstrate that they still trust him. Now, when we read this, you might have a question. In verse 15 and verse 19, it says that the Israelites who eat leavened bread will be cut off. And I don't know about you, but that seems pretty intense. Like, what are you talking about? I had a roll? Which, by the way, how do you have a festival, a celebration without rolls? I, I don't know, but they had to do that. <coughs> like, you, that, that seems intense, what's going on here. Uh, but what we need to know is that when it says being cut off, uh, the, 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 the problem is not like an accidental mistake or like a five-year-old kid who like somehow, I don't, I don't know how a five-year-old kid would do this because I'm 30 years old and I don't know how to make bread. But let's say they figure out how to do it and they eat leavened bread and the kid's cut off. Like that's not what's happening here. What, what's happening here is it's, what, what God is saying with these instructions is that by eating leavened bread intentionally is showing a lack of faith and trust in God. This is not about an honest mistake, but this is about willful disobedience. And what we see throughout the, if you continue to read you know, the Old Testament and the uh, Israelite laws, this is, not what, this is not a law that was to be enforced so much as it was a prediction of, from God of the fate of those who would go their own way. So it's not like saying you ate some leavened bread and you're a terrible person, we want nothing to do with you. What he's saying here is that it's demonstrating a heart that is not following God and is going their own way, which is the destination of all of us who reject him, that we are rejected, we don't see the experience, the goodness of God. So verse 21 it says this, now they're going to prepare to leave Egypt. With all those instructions in hand, here's what happens next. So then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select an animal from the flock according to your families and slaughter the Passover animal. Take a cluster of hyssop, dump it in the, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and brush the lintel and the doorpost with some of the blood in the, in the basin. None of you may go out of the door of his house until morning. When the Lord passes through to strike Egypt and sees the blood, uh, blood on, the, on the lintel and the two doorposts, he will pass over the door and not let the destroyer enter your house to strike you. Keep this command permanently as a statute for you and your descendants. When you enter the land, the Lord will give you. When your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? You are to reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians and he spared our homes. So the people knelt low and worshiped. Then the Israelites went and did this. They did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So what we see happening here is beginning with the first Pharaoh that initially put the Israelites into slavery, into bondage, into legalized genocide, into oppression, all the way to the current Pharaoh. Uh, the Egyptians have, again, mistreated, uh, as we saw last week. If you take, as followers of Jesus, we read this, and we're, of course, we're sympathetic to the Israelites. Even if you take the Christian perspective out of this, if you could see what was going on here, you would say this is very inhumane, uh, this is very unfair, and there's something that needs to be done about this. What's happening here is actually horrific towards the Israelites. And so none of the first plague, what's significant about this last plague and why he strikes down the firstborn, uh, none of the first plagues moved Egyptians or Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. And as we saw that, that Israel is essentially God's firstborn, that he chooses Israel to bless them, not because they were inherently great, but because God is good. And he's going to use through Israel, the Messiah is going to come to bless the whole world. Well, Pharaoh would not let God's firstborn go. And so now Egypt is going to lose their firstborn. And just to be clear here, this is not evil for evil. This is not you're bad. And so God is going to punish them. What's happening here is God's righteous judgment. 
his righteous judgments against sin and evil and darkness. And so what we see happening throughout Egypt, and especially what's happening here, um, what we see happening here is that bad things happen to people who say, I'm going to go my own way and do what I want to do. And so here's what happens, verse 29, the last part of uh, uh, Exodus we'll read this morning. It says, Now at midnight, the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and every firstborn of the livestock. During the night, Pharaoh got up, he along with all of his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud wailing throughout Egypt, because there wasn't a house without someone dead. He summoned Moses and Aaron during the night and said, Get out immediately from among my people, both you and the Israelites, and go. Worship the Lord as you have said. Take even your flocks and your herds as you have asked, and leave, and also bless me. Also bless me. If you remember, at first Pharaoh was like, some of you can go, and then he said, some of the young men can go, and then he said, all of you can go except for your livestock and your possessions. Now he's saying, all of you need to go. You guys bless me. Go your own way. And so what we see happening here is a reminder to all of us that God's judgment rests on those who reject him. God's judgment rests on those who reject him. And I think it's interesting, and I think it's significant to point out that when we talk about judgment in Scripture, uh, and particularly judgment when it comes from God, we kind of assume that God's judgment means that he's angry and he's spiteful and he's going to get us back for our evil, evil deeds because that's just who he is and he doesn't like bad things and so he's got to make us feel judged for it. Uh, what we actually th- see throughout Scripture um, is that when judgment happens, it's not because God is angry at us for being terrible people so much as judgment is God giving us over to our own desires. Oftentimes throughout scripture in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, judgment happens when God says, okay, you want to go your own way. I will let you do your own thing, but you will experience the consequences of your actions. It's not God saying, get out of my sight. I want nothing to do with you. It's a loving God saying, I'm going to leave you to your own devices if that is what you Want. And this is what's going to happen to Egypt here. Now, I think it's significant to point out, we won't read it this morning, we'll read it next week, but when the Israelites leave, we see in verse 38 that the Israelites don't go by themselves. Verse 38 says there was a mixed multitude. In other words, there were some Egyptians that were like, I'm on their team. In fact, we even see this during the plague. Some of the Egyptians, like when the plague, when there was hail, would bring in their own animals and their own people because they respected Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so it wasn't just Egypt, Israelites that left. There were some Egyptians that went with them. And then also in verse 42, it says that, they, that every, all the gold and silver and clothes that the Israelites asked of the Egyptians as they left, the Egyptians gave them whatever they asked because they wanted them to leave. That God's judgment rests on those who reject him. Now, you might be saying, what does all of this have to do with us? Like you said, if we got to the end, this would make more sense. And we read all this stuff and like, what does this even mean? Particularly for Christians today, what does this have to do with us? Well, this is significant because the meal that Jesus was celebrating with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed was this meal. Jesus is going into Jerusalem on the first night of Passover to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples. This wasn't some like last hurrah, we just get together, get the boys together and have a meal before things are going to go bad, right? They're celebrating the Passover meal. And if we remember that scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus, what this means, again, it should not surprise us then that communion, the meal that we take to celebrate Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection is a meal that is rooted in the history of God's salvation, 
Like God saved the Israelites out of Egypt, and now he's saving us from our own ways. In other words, Passover, the meal of Passover, what they would do is they would take a spotless lamb, a perfect and unblemished lamb, and they would be saved by its blood. Right? They would put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. Right? The lamb would take the place of a firstborn, which is what Jesus did for us. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, it talks about who Jesus was and the mightiness and the power of him. And here's what it says. It says, he, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Not that Jesus was created first, but that he takes the place of a firstborn. And typically in ancient cultures, there was extra honor and prestige and privilege on the firstborn. And so Jesus is the firstborn in our behalf. And so what we see happening at the, 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 the Last Supper, when Jesus is with his disciples and they're celebrating the meal that we now call communion, we have Jesus leading his disciples in this remembrance meal. And so Jesus gets up as he begins this Passover meal, and you would expect, the expectation is that Jesus would say something along the lines of this traditional phrase. It'll be on the screen. This is a traditional um, Passover saying that when, before you would take of the bread to begin the meal, you would kind of have a blessing, an invitation, and a remembrance. And this is what a lot of, uh, this is, he might have said something like this or very similar to this, or maybe even this exact thing as he started the Passover meal with his disciples. Here's what's typically said at the beginning of Passover. You would say something like this. This is the bread of our affliction, which our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. Let all who are hungry come and eat. Let all who are needy come and celebrate the Passover with us. That you don't have to be just an Israelite. Anybody can come and see and taste and see of God's deliverance. That is what you would expect Jesus to have said. But what does Jesus say? Instead of saying that, he says this in Luke chapter 22. It'll be on the screen in verse 19. Before they begin the meal, he doesn't say that. Instead, he says this. And he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What Jesus is now saying is that this bread is now to be seen not as the bread of affliction for your ancestors, but this bread is to be seen as my affliction for you. What Jesus is doing here, in other words, is blasphemous, if he is not God, right? Thousands of years of tradition and Jesus is saying this whole celebration, this Passover meal, you're actually celebrating me. This is why Jesus was killed because he claimed to be God. He said this meal was not just about the one-time effect for the Israelites many, many years ago, but it was a foreshadowing of what I was going to do for the entire world. And then he passes around the cup in verse 20 and it says this, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So you have the bread that he's bro his body broken for us. You have the blood, which takes the place of the lamb's blood on the doorpost, that it's Christ's blood that saves us. Now, the question is, what are we missing in this meal? Right? We're missing something very significant with the Lord's Passover meal, and that is the lamb. We have no reference to a lamb in this meal. Why? Because Jesus himself is the lamb in our place. It's why in John chapter 1, verse 29, where, the, where the, John the Baptist is talking about the Messiah to come, he says, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His body, his blood, he is the lamb. He is 
the sacrifice. This is what the gospel means to us. The gospel is the good news of who Jesus was, that the plan of redemption has seen its fulfillment, its consummation in him. And he's not just the deliverer of the Israelites and the Jews, but he's also the deliverer of the mixed multitudes. He's also the deliverer of the man and the woman, of the slave and the free, of the attractive, of the powerful, of the influential and the downtrodden and the rejected by society. Jesus is coming to say, I am the salvation for all who would come and see and taste and experience that the Lord is good. It's why the last verses I'll read in Romans chapter 10, the apostle Paul talking about this says this in verses 11 through 13. He says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes on him, on Jesus, will not be put to shame since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek because of the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Which means for us that communion is a reminder for the believer. It's a remembrance, it's a symbolization of our trust in him. In other words, what we see happening here, the point of all of this and why we need to understand the Passover in Exodus chapter 12 is because what this means for us is that Jesus is our Passover. Jesus has now come into human history, come and done for us what we could not do for ourselves, that anybody who would trust and follow him and say, God, I I don't have this all figured out. God, I messed up. God, I've fallen short. God, I need you. Jesus is the Passover on all of our behalf. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter who you voted for, no matter how you feel about how the election went this week, Jesus is the Passover for us. He says, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. And so we celebrate Passover not as this random reminder that Jesus was having a meal with his disciples when he was the night that he was going to give his life for us and says, hey, take this meal because we're eating together and do this in remembrance of me. What he's saying is this meal that you have celebrated for generations and generations and generations was pointing to the ultimate Passover to come. It was pointing to me. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take communion together. And so I'm going to invite the band back onto the stage. Um, Under the seat, if you would like to celebrate communion with us, um, there you'll see one of these little uh, packets. You can go ahead and pull that out. Or if you just want to sit back and just pray and reflect on what has been said, you can do that too. Um, I think it's significant for us to remember that this is not some random meal. And I think it can be very easy for us because we do this, you know, if you're a follower of Christ, somewhat frequently. so you got to do this and kind of get into the, the mode of like, this is what we always do and kind of just kind of go through the motions. But I think if we sit and reflect and remember that this meal matters, that Christ is saying my plan of redemption was always to come to save not just the Israelites, but the mixed multitudes. For anyone who would place their trust in me, we do that we take partake of this meal, not because God needs to know whether or not we trust him. We partake of this meal to symbolize, to physically demonstrate our trust in him. This meal is the Passover on our behalf, that Jesus came in a time to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, that he laid down his life on our behalf, that his body and his blood became the lamb that was slain for us. And the invitation is for anyone who would seek him, anyone who would desire him, in the midst of your doubts and your frustrations and your mess-ups and your unsure things of life, that you can come and taste and see the Lord is good. And so if you want to peel back the top layer, there's a couple of layers of these things. Um, you'll have a little, little wafer thing, unleavened. There you go. So we're on the right track here. Doesn't taste very good. Um, and it's to be a reminder that Jesus broke the bread. He passed it around with the disciples. And he said, this is the bread of my affliction for you. And so we take this bread 
and remembrance of what Christ has done for us. It's not about what we do, but what he has done for us. And so he passed around the bread. He said, take in remembrance of me. Let's take and eat and remember the goodness of God together. And then he passed around the blood. It's significant because it's not just the fact that God's blood would be shed on the cross. It's significant because, again, if we remember the Passover, the blood of the lamb symbolized that this family trusted in, in the deliverance of God instead of the deliverance of themselves. And so this blood is a reminder to us of trusting in the deliverance of God instead of working out on our behalf and trying to do all things on our own. The blood is a rem- reminder that God, the Lamb of God himself, has come for us, gave his life for us, and we take and drink in remembrance of what he has done for us. So let's drink together in remember of Christ's sacrifice.